Most saxophone players also know how to play flute and clarinet. This is what's known as doubling, and most score writers will just assume that the saxophone player can also play flute and clarinet, and they'll write in transitions to those instruments in the middle of parts. One thing they don't always take into account is how long it takes to switch from, say, a saxophone to a flute, which can lead to some logistical challenges and some interesting choreography on the bandstand. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music where the saxophone players play flute, music where the flute players play piccolo, and sometimes music where there's just a bass clarinet player, and that's the only instrument they play, so you better deal with it. We've got a bunch of your questions to answer on this Q&A episode, and I'm excited to get into it, so find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. That choreography is no joke. I've played saxophone in a lot of different bands where I needed to switch to usually flute, but sometimes clarinet very quickly. And you'd have to kind of write into your part, okay, this is going to be a fast change. You know, you'd write two flute, but you'd have to write it eight bars earlier than the flute part was notated in the music, because otherwise you wouldn't remember to start getting your flute out really quickly. And then when the flute part started, you wouldn't have your flute ready and the music would kind of start passing you by. You can notate this kind of thing with a VS, which stands for Volti Sabido, and to me always just meant very speedy. I actually never knew what it meant, I would just see it in parts, you know, turn page VS, and it just means very speedy, you're going to have to do it fast, because there's only like, you know, half of a bar of rest on the next page, so you got to turn the page very quickly, and I would definitely write that as well uh, for a transition to flute, to flute, VVVVS. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for listening and thanks for spreading the word. As always, I continue to see people telling their friends about the show, and that is really cool. Strong Songs is a totally listener-supported show, which means that all of you make it possible for me to keep doing this. If you want to know more about how to support me making this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs, and thank you so much to all of my patrons. Also, just a little teaser, we are on the precipice of finally having some Strong Songs merchandise. I'm finalizing the Strong Songs store, and it'll be up pretty soon. I'm very happy with some of the merchandise. I have samples of all the stuff. My house is sort of covered in Strong Songs merch, and some of it is really cool. So I hope people like it. I am certainly excited, and I'll have more on that very soon. All right, this is a mailbag episode. I'm excited to get into it. I have so many great questions from you. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. If you would like to send me a question for a future Q&A, send email to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Our first passel of questions here is related to different TV themes. We just talked about a bunch of TV themes from uh, HBO shows on the most recent episode. Heard from a lot of people who liked that episode. That was a fun one to make. But I have a bunch of questions from over the months about various other TV theme songs, music from TV shows. So I wanted to answer all of those. Let's start with Zach. Zach writes, what's happening in the parks and recreation theme at about 11 seconds right after the horns come in? It shifts down. I'm pretty sure it's not a key change, but it almost feels like it is. What is going on? Well, let's listen. First of all, I love this theme. Music was written by Gabby Moreno and Vincent Jones. It was kind of a contest, apparently. Um, they did a contest to find theme music among songwriters, and they submitted this music and it got turned into the show's theme music. I love it so much. It's actually one of my favorite TV theme songs. I always sing along with it. I like the version that goes, Job of the Hut, Job of the Hut. Job of the Hut, and we had a dog, a, our, our dearly departed French bulldog, Nugget, who we always called Buggles, and we would sing, Buggles the dog, Buggles the dog, Buggles the dog. Buggles the dog whenever he came into the room. He was a very much of a grumpy French bulldog, so the music didn't really match him, and that was kind of what made it so perfect. So to Zach's question, what's going on there at 11 seconds? Well, this song is in C, and basically what it's doing is it's moving between C and F and G, the one, the four, and the five, which are very common chords. It's got this really nice pulse to it, and I love that clarinet part. It's this very um, like strictly articulated, some sort of double reed in there, trumpet joins, harpsichord, but it's a really cool melody and I like how it works. 
but for the most part at the beginning, just C to F to C to G. Then they go to the relative minor, which is A minor, and that's, I think, that's the chord progression that you're asking about, Zach. So it's not really a key change, or I mean, you can call it that, I don't know, it's a little bit semantic, but they're just going into A minor for a little while. This part of the song is just in A minor, which is the relative minor to C major. They get to A minor by going to an E major, or an E dominant, which is the five of that A minor, and leads into it. It also has a G sharp, and that's a really important note. So that chord progression, with no melody, it goes C, F, C, G, C, F, C, E, A minor, F, C, G. And those are the chords of the first part of the Parks and Recreation theme. Now that's not a wild chord progression on its own, a lot of songs do that, they go from 1 to a 3 dominant, 7 to a 6 minor, which is just like a really standard transition to get you to that relative minor. What makes this version so lively and what makes it feel like the song has really moved somewhere else is actually the melody. So the main part of this melody is just Do, Re, Mi, and Fa, the first four notes of the major scale. But then, when it goes to minor, there's some nice movement. So the melody is what makes it sound so dramatic, I think anyways, and it's really that there's a G-sharp in the melody, that leading tone, the major third and E, which is the one note that's outside of the C major scale, it's really emphasized in the melody because it's not only, you know, outside of the key of C major, it's also where the melody makes a big intervallic jump compared to what it's been doing. So the first phrases are very constrained between C, D, and E, they're just kind of moving around, really nice just straight down a C major scale in this kind of like staircase shape. So it goes on just long enough for your ear to get used to just hearing that ba ba da ba 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 da ba you go down two and then back up one. So the first phrase just takes that shape and then just moves it steadily down while keeping the shape the exact same the whole way through the phrase. It's just enough repetition to get your ear used to it and to make you start to expect that you're going to hear that motion when they do the second phrase, which starts the same way, but then has a big jump. That jump actually goes down to a G sharp, which is the third in E major. It's the leading tone that really is driving toward that A minor, and then the end of the phrase resolves to A minor. It's like an enclosure around A, G sharp, A, B, A, and it ends on A minor. So not only are the chords moving to a new place, the melody is really strongly driving to that new place as well, and it totally, it kind of knocks you off balance, which then the rest of the song doesn't regain that balance ever. Like it starts in this very kind of static place, but then immediately kicks into overdrive and starts moving through harmony much more quickly. It goes through this cool G mixolydian ascending scale, then the whole ensemble walks down back to C major, then the ending section just moves back through all those chords with these lovely string parts. It's really cool. It compacts a lot of stuff into a short amount of time. So tidy, so well written. I really love that theme music. All right, our next question comes from Nick, who writes, My question is about Barry McCreary's wonderful Black Sails theme song. What is that instrument that starts out the track and continues on through the song? It sounds like a string instrument, but it doesn't sound like a cello, violin, or other string instruments that one usually hears. Is that a sampled effect? Well, let's listen to Barry McCreary's theme song from Black Sails and see what we hear. Well, what instrument is that? It's one that I know that Bear McCreary likes. It is an unusual instrument. It's called the hurdy-gurdy. Now, I don't actually watch this show. Um, it's really cool theme music, though, and I love Bear McCreary's work. Bear, of course, is best known as the composer for the Battlestar Galactica remake. Really, really cool. Uh, really cool music on that show. And he's very good at picking instruments like this one, like the hurdy-gurdy. There were a lot of unusual instruments in Battlestar as well. And he's good at showcasing soloists. His wife, Rhea Yarborough, is a wonderful vocalist. She sang. She was like the voice of Battlestar Galactica. He's very smart about picking individual musicians to highlight in his soundtracks and it makes them sound distinct. 
The hurdy-gurdy is not an instrument I have any expertise with. I've never played one. It looks a little bit like a steampunk cello. It's a stringed instrument where you turn this crank and a wheel rubs up against the strings, which creates this uneven keening sound that's a little bit like a bowed string instrument, but much weirder. It's a strange sounding instrument, definitely a distinct texture, and it stands out on this soundtrack. It's a really smart choice to feature it just because it could he could use a cello or a trumpet or a piano or whatever, some very familiar sounding instrument, but instead you're immediately drawn in thinking, what in the world is that? And then you write into a music podcast and you ask them what it is and they explain what the hurdy-gurdy is and the whole thing is just a much more rich interaction than if you just heard a trumpet and thought, well, that's a nice sounding trumpet. Luke writes, I was watching the new TV remake of What We Do in the Shadows, great movie, pretty good show so far, and the theme song is rhythmically just absolutely next level. Seriously, I have tried counting this thing out so many times and I am stumped, yet it sounds awesome and feels like it makes sense rhythmically even if I can't wrap my brain around it. I would love to hear your take. Well, Luke, first my take is the What We Do in the Shadows TV show is amazing. Um, I'm guessing you maybe feel that way too if you've watched the whole thing. It kind of grows on you, sneaks up on you over time. I watched that entire thing a couple of months ago and just really loved it. Jackie Daytona, probably my favorite TV character of the year, and I love the theme music for this show. This is by the folk singer Norma Tanega. It's from her 1966 album Walkin' My Cat Named Dog. I've actually been listening to this album a lot over the past few months. It's really cool. She's really cool. And this song is really cool. And yeah, the counting on it is pretty gnarly. It, it's gnarly in that way that's kind of subtle because there's a steady backbeat, but the counting and the phrases is kind of unusual and it throws you off and I kind of like that kind of odd meter actually like it's not an odd meter it's it's in it's basically in 10 it's like six and then four but it, it just throws you off in a way that is more subtle than if a song is just really obviously like in seven or you know they're just dropping beats all over the place and, and everything sounds really disjointed in a way that just sounds very on purpose it's much more organic and I think that's really cool all right let's listen to it don't sing if you want to live long They have no use for your song You're dead, you're dead, you're dead You're dead and out of this world Alright, so I said it's in 6 and 4 I'm going to count it this time Here we go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 1, 2, 3, 4 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 1, 2, 3, 4 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 1, 2, 3, 4 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 1 Or you can count it in 5 at half the speed one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. You're down, you're down, you're down, you're down and out of this world. Now, if you're counting along with me, you may have noticed that the counting is a little bit less straightforward than I'm making it sound. The ends of phrases, it's just a little bit different. There's kind of just some steady 4-4 four, four that comes in. Uh, so if you're counting it in half time, you wind up having to count a bar of three. It, it's not uh, totally straight up just in five or in ten, um, which I think adds to the sort of flowing quality that this song has in general. Really cool theme music, really cool counting, and like I said, I love that kind of groove where there's a steady backbeat and the oddness of the counting is a little bit more subtle than if it was like, you know, like some kind of prog jazz stuff. Like, it, it's not that kind of odd counting. It's so much more organic and it kind of just flows out. And a lot of Tanega's writing is that way. This record is really cool. I recommend listening to it and checking out her music because she is great. This next question is about a song from a TV show, and this song, I actually became obsessed with this song just about a week ago because I've only recently been watching the show. Addison wrote in to ask a question about it, but I put it in my questions document without the name of the song, so then I just sort of clicked on it, and it opened up this song, and it's the song that I've been listening to obsessively over the last week because it's totally amazing, and it's a song that was featured on the HBO show Lovecraft Country in the fifth episode. It's by a singer named Moses Sumney, and it's called Lonely World. This is one of those songs that starts in one place and ends up somewhere very different. It's a really incredible song. Moses Sumney is an incredible singer. Then it starts out in this fairly simple place with electric bass and just beautiful vocals on top. And the sound. 
Side note, that's Thundercat playing bass. That guy is a bad mother and is worth checking out. He uh, played bass on a couple tracks on this record. He is a very good bass player, and his bass playing adds so much to this track. Also, actually, Tosin Abasi from Animals as Leaders is also on this track. So this is a good album. If any of you haven't listened to this album, you should go listen to it. There's a bunch of really good musicians making good music. So on to Addison's question. Addison writes, I can't quite tell what the rhythm is doing, especially as it gets toward the end. Is it triplets, swung eighths, shifting between four, four, three, five? It's a lot, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, this first part of the song is pretty loose. It's kind of out of time. You know, Moses is just singing along with Thundercat and overdubbing vocal parts, and it just, it has a very, a sort of a loose liquid flow to it, and it works beautifully. But then the beat comes in, and things actually are pretty steadily in 4-4, though I could understand why it might not sound like it's in 4-4 time. So the key is to just really focus on that pulse, that one, two, three, four, because it's steadily in four, even though there's so much going on. That's Ian Chang on the drums. He's really mixing it up, and it's especially during that setup section where he's just playing the hi-hat and the snare. That's the sizzle and the pop, but there's no thump. The kick drum hasn't really come in, and so he's playing the snare drum in all sorts of different places, and you kind of just got to keep the pulse going in your head. One, two, three, four, like that, despite what he's playing, because he's playing in time. He's just not playing steadily in time. Like He's not just doing a backbeat or something, so you can't rely on the snare drum to orient yourself. All right, let's get into it, and I'm just going to count in 4-4 throughout that entire section, and then when the drums fully come in, like when that thump comes in on the bottom, you'll be pretty oriented into that 4-4 time, and by then, it just stays there, you know, through to the end of the song, and you can kind of just get that in your head. All right, here we go. Extremely cool song, and it can be kind of disorienting because there's so much vocal layering going on. There are these kind of hemiola patterns repeating in different kind of overlaid time signatures, or at least implied different time signatures overlaid over that four. There's a really cool thing later where the drums and the bass go just flying over the bar line in this transition into a new section. That sounds super cool. Check it out. And the whole thing is just is just really rich and cool, even though it is layered over that 4-4 time. It's anything but simple. So thanks, Addison, for giving me an excuse to talk about this song. Everybody, go check Moses Sumney out. He's really good. Our last TV question comes from Kelly, who writes, I know that your Strong Songs podcast is quite balanced in showcasing both male and female artists, but as the HBO theme music episode was progressing, I kept hoping that there would be at least one female composer, but alas, none appeared. What is with all the male composers in the HBO television landscape? Are there any female composers working in the TV industry? Is it just that HBO has this dearth of women, or is it a common thread throughout all of the television networks? I would love to know if there are any women working in the industry, and if not, why do you suppose that is? So for starters, this was definitely something that I was aware of the whole time I was making that HBO episode. I do try to keep some kind of a gender balance on this show, which has its own challenges because the music industry has long been very male-dominated. There are a lot of men who have made a lot of very good music that I want to talk about on this show, but of course, many of my favorite musicians are women. I've talked about a lot of them on this show already, and we'll talk about a lot of them in the future, and I do try to keep things balanced, and as I was making that HBO episode, I just I kept running up against the fact that every composer working on every show on HBO that I watch is a man. And actually, almost every composer on every TV show I've ever watched has been a man. 
Now, I'm not just talking about theme music here. There's actually there's plenty of theme music written by women, performed by women. Even a couple of the examples that I just cited were written or co-written by women. I'm talking about scoring TV shows. And in the world of professional scoring, be it TV, movie, or video games, there's this massive gender imbalance that reflects a similar gender imbalance in the broader world of professional audio. Just engineers, producers, composers, pretty much all of those fields are extremely male-dominated. So, of course, Gabby Moreno and Norma Tanega, two examples of women who wrote theme music for TV shows, Parks and Recreation, and What We Do in the Shadows. Rachel Bloom is a great example of an incredible musician who wrote all of the songs from her show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's an awesome show. One of my favorite musicians ever, Michelle Indigiacello, composed music for Queen Sugar. Great show, great music. So there are exceptions out there, though it tends to be more in the sort of songwriting theme song realm than in the just like in-house composer Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, person who's writing the stingers and the swells that play behind scenes on the actual TV show. There's a good Refinery29 article on this that I will link to in the show notes. They looked at both primetime and cable TV shows from the 2017-2018 season and found kind of around 6% of shows. That's 7 out of 117 on primetime and 11 out of 201 on cable gave composer credits to women. Per a Women in Hollywood study, in Hollywood it's even worse. 3% of films from 2017 had scores composed by women. So there is a major disparity there. And it's something to be aware of because it's just so pervasive, and I think it's easy to just not think about it. There are so many great male composers making awesome music for TV shows, but there just aren't any women, and anytime something is that imbalanced, it does seem like something's got to give or something should change. As for why that is, I think it's a lot of the same reasons that a lot of professions are male-dominated. Pay inequality, unfair hiring practices, lack of support for working mothers, that sort of thing. And then once an industry is male-dominated, there's this sort of almost tautological thing where men have all the work, therefore men get all the future work. A showrunner will probably work with a composer that they're familiar with, and the composers they're familiar with are, just by the numbers, probably men, so the men will get the future work from the showrunners. So, you know, changing this kind of thing requires people to actually take a chance and hire new talent and and find new voices and kind of raise them up, and that kind of thing is less common than it should be. So yeah, do some reading, learn about this, and uh, support female composers when you can, because there's a lot of really great women making really amazing music out there, and it would be cool if more TV shows and more movies had more women composing music for them. Jordan writes, in their album Flying Microtonal Banana, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard use microtonal instruments. I was wondering what the differences are between standard and microtonal instruments. Okay, well, microtones. Let's talk about microtones. Actually, first, let's talk about the band name King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, because I had to give that several takes to get that right without saying it wrong. So uh, I finally did it. But that is quite a mouthful of a band name. And I really dig this band. I hadn't listened to them before, but this is a pretty cool album. And there is some microtonal stuff going on on it. So, okay, microtones, a little bit of a buzzword right now. Microtonal music is kind of buzzy because it sounds cool and new, even though it's not cool and new at all. It's, I mean, it's cool, but it's not new. Uh, It's been around for a really long time. A microtone is just something, a smaller interval than a semitone. So it's smaller than a half step. It basically means manipulating the pitch of the note to be just a few cents sharp or a few cents flat without fully going a half step sharp or flat. So you're playing a sharp C instead of playing an actual C sharp, which is full semitone above. Like here's a little melodic figure in C major. Here's the same melodic figure up a semitone, so that's in C sharp major. And here it is, I'm just using the pitch wheel on the synthesizer, and this is kind of somewhere in between. So this is a microtonal melody. Now this whole thing is kind of rooted in the Western, you know, the European 12-tone chromatic scale, which is not used by every culture in the world. Like, it's not the default way of hearing music or anything. It's just a way that some people divided up the sonic spectrum, and then a lot of people in popular music, people making popular music, kind of adhere to that 12-tone scale. So making microtonal music steps outside of it and can sound pretty cool. It can sound fresh and kind of odd and sort of surprise your ear, which is something that will constantly happen to you if you listen to this King Gizzard album. I mean, every song is kind of in a key, but then, you know, the notes will just not quite land where you expect them.
I believe that they tuned their instruments in microtones, so they're going outside of standard 12-tone, you know, tuning, and they're doing something different. I don't actually, I haven't studied the album enough, and I don't have a good enough ear for microtonal stuff to really totally break down what they're doing and to tell you whether they're actually all doing it together or whether it's a little bit chaotic. I mean, the whole album is kind of chaotic because that's just the sound. It's very distorted and thick and kind of juicy and raw. It's, it's nice, um, but it's it's I can't tell whether it's like a really consistently applied microtonal approach, but that's also kind of not the sound they're going for. That's not the point. The point is that it's supposed to sound kind of unexpected and uncomfortable in places. You know, another example that actually comes to mind is an album I've recently been listening to. It's the new Fleet Foxes album. It's called Shore. It's a fantastic album, beautifully recorded, beautiful sounding, incredible singing, incredible songwriting. And there's this tune. It's called Can I Believe You? And in the middle of it, they're um, vocal harmonies. They're all singing together. And then they do something I would call microtonal. The instruments and the voices just pull apart in a way that just creates this very uncanny sound that the first time I heard it, I was just like, whoa, what is that? And it's really cool. I mean, that's the intended effect. And that, I would say, is a really nice application of microtonal harmony. Check it out. All right, here we go. kind of tilts your ear on its side, right? <laughs> the modern embrace of microtonal sounds, it just kind of is moving outside of the 12-tone scale, which I think is really great. I think it's really cool to hear so many current artists going outside of that framework because music doesn't adhere to that framework. There's no law of physics that says you need to divide every octave into 12 notes. And so many artists are able to make these kind of surprising and beautiful sounds doing that. There are plenty of other examples I could cite. Jacob Collier, actually, who I've talked about uh, recently on the show, his arrangement of Moon River has a lot of microtonal stuff. He has perfect pitch and can just, his ears are unbelievable. And he'll create these vocal tapestries of his own voice where the pitches are just shifting and moving around in ways that, yeah, they're defined by the traditional harmony. I mean, it's Moon River. It's a song with pretty standard chords. But the way that he moves between chords and some of the harmonies that he builds aren't restricted to just a 12-tone chromatic scale. He's going way beyond that because he has the ear to do it. And he does it really consistently, too. It's, it's pretty incredible. Oh, dream maker, Jacob was just on the wonderful sound-focused podcast, 20,000 Hertz, talking about perfect pitch, and uh, they featured some of that arrangement. So to everyone who wrote in to me saying, wow, have you heard of this Jacob Collier guy? You should do a harmonic analysis of his arrangement of Moon River. I'm flattered that you think I could do a harmonic analysis of that, but uh, that's it's a little beyond me. But um, really cool stuff. Microtonal music in general, very cool. There's a lot of neat stuff you can do with it. It's much more than just playing out of tune, even though I'm sure that you could cynically say, well, some of these people are just sort of randomly playing out of tune. There's more to it than that, and I think it's a really neat spice and a neat element that you can add to music, and you can build some beautiful sounds out of it as well. Seb writes, there's something I wanted to ask Ray, the song Money by Pink Floyd, not about the quirky time signature. That's good, Seb, because I think I answered a question about the time signature um, in that song on like the first Q&A episode ever of the show or something. Anyhow, Seb continues, there's a descending scale that occurs in that song, most notably at about 335 after the guitar solo that I can't quite place. The notes start and end an octave apart, but there are nine notes in the scale, so I think there's a half step squeezed in between the lowest two notes. Is there a name for this scale? And are nine notes? note scales common. Is that a thing? Well, yes, that is a thing. Um, nine note scales are very useful, actually. Let's listen to what Seb is asking about first. This is from Pink Floyd's Money from the Dark Side of the Moon. And 
here comes the scale in question. So yeah, that's a scale with nine notes. It starts on a B and it ends on a B and there are nine notes in the scale as opposed to the eight notes that are in the major scale and thus all of the modes of the major scale. We've talked about modes on previous Q&A episodes, not gonna go into them right now. But yes, nine note scales are actually common. I typically call a nine note scale a bebop scale. That's what I learned um, it being called. This is a type of scale that is used a lot in blues and jazz. um, And it's a very, very useful thing for improvising. So the bebop scale is basically a major or dominant or minor scale with an extra chromatic passing tone added so that you get more chord tones on downbeats. That's the purpose of it. The concept of the bebop scale was popularized by the late, great David Baker, one of the most important and amazing jazz educators ever. I actually have a personal connection with him. I took his course um, when I was in high school. Uh, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and he was the director of jazz studies at Indiana University and was one of the most important people in terms of sort of formalizing and figuring out how to teach jazz improvisation. The bebop scale was central to his approach to jazz improvisation and jazz harmony, and, you know, I grew up taking master classes with him, taking his IU course when I was a high school student. You know, I I learned this stuff. It's, like, very deep in my DNA, but it's something that everybody learns under one name or another. So David Gilmour, the guitarist for Pink Floyd, is using a bebop scale. He's playing a D mixolydian bebop scale over B minor, which isn't a totally typical usage of it, but we'll get to his usage in a second. Let me just explain what it is. So for starters, a D mixolydian scale, that's a D major scale with a flat 7, that's the scale that you would play over a D7 chord, which is a very common chord in blues and jazz, a D dominant chord, you would play this scale. Now, bebop players tend to play phrases in eighth notes. Eighth notes are very important in bebop, swing eighths. Eighth notes are really important in jazz, too. But bebop lines tend to be built out of eighth notes. And if you're playing a descending line on a D mixolydian scale in eighth notes, you get downbeats on half the notes and upbeats on the other half the notes, right? That makes sense. So here's a descending D mixolydian scale, and I'm going to emphasize the downbeats. Here we go. Now, there are no hard and fast rules of jazz improvisation, but one good guideline, at least when you're trying to create just a sturdy phrase, is that you want to have strong tones, chord tones, on the downbeats of your eighth note lines, and the upbeats can be more passing tones, chromatic enclosures. You can kind of put a little bit more weird business on the upbeats if your downbeats are super strong. So if you play a descending D mixolydian scale, you actually get downbeats on the one, which is fine, and then on the six, which is okay, and then on the four, which is not good at all, and then on the two, which is fine but not great. In particular though, you really don't want to be emphasizing that fourth. Like if the rhythm section is playing a D7 chord, a D, an F sharp, an A, and a C, and you're just sitting there on a, on a G as a soloist, you're creating a flat ninth between your note and that F sharp in the rhythm section, and it's just, I mean, listen to this. Ugh, it's a bad sound. I know the G is in the D blues scale, but if you're on the one chord, you just, you don't want to be sitting there on the fourth. It can be okay if you kind of get off it quickly, but having it be a downbeat in your eighth note line is far from ideal. Moreover, remember, in an eighth note line, you want to have chord tones as downbeats and non-chord tones as upbeats. And in this case, that's actually flipped. The downbeats are the non-chord tones, and the upbeats are the three, the five, and the seventh, the chord tones. Now, if you think like a jazz musician, you're probably thinking very practically, and this is something that Charlie Parker, Bud Powell, all the great bebop musicians did. You just could add an eighth note to that scale, turn it into a nine-tone scale, and that would move everything over by an eighth note, which would mean that your downbeats would be chord tones and your upbeats would be non-chord tones, and that's exactly what the bebop scale does. Specifically, the D mixolydian bebop scale, it has a major seventh and a minor seventh, so there's some chromaticism right at the top. You go from D to D flat to C to B, and then you play the rest of the mixolydian scale normally. It's much easier to build lines out of that scale because you get lots more chord tones on the downbeats, which just gives you sturdier sounding lines. So here is that line on a D7 chord with just a regular D mixolydian scale descending. And here's the same line with the D mixolydian bebop scale descending, and it's gonna get those chord tones on the downbeat and give a much sturdier sounding line. That chromaticism is everywhere in jazz music. The sort of Indiana bebop line, which is sort of in honor of David Baker, sounds like this. 
you'll hear that just about everywhere the minute you start learning how to play bebop because it's just such a useful tool. It helps you build strong lines, a million famous quotes, a million lines that people learn, 251 licks, all are built out of that chromaticism, and it all comes from that bebop scale. All right, back to David Gilmore, Pink Floyd, and money. Like I said, that scale is a D mixolydian bebop scale, but it starts and ends on B, so it's kind of like a mode of a bebop scale, which I don't think of the bebop scales as having modes, though I'm sure you could come up with names for those modes if you wanted to. This would be some sort of Phrygian thing since it has a flat two. But uh, this starts on a B, then it walks down what would basically be a B minor scale, but then at the very end, between the D and the B, it adds a C sharp, a C, and a B. What that allows Gilmore and the whole band actually to do, this is a, a whole band-wide riff, is they get that extra eighth note which lets them land on one with that B chord. So they add that C, that extra chromatic note, just to give them an extra eighth note so that it displaces the uh, the line so that it lands on one, which is the same thing that bebop musicians were doing 30 years earlier to get their lines to land where they wanted them to. Now I'm talking about the bebop scale because Seb asked about nine note scales and the bebop scale is a good example of one of those. I don't know, you could definitely call this a D mixolydian bebop scale just starting on B. It's kind of also just a walking bass line. It has as much in common with what jazz bass players play, um, the kind of passing tones that they do, so that they can also keep chord tones on the downbeat. It's the same kind of principle, it's just being applied by bass players in quarter notes as they walk bass lines over jazz tunes. So bebop scales are played in eighth notes, usually by soloists, while those bass lines are played in quarter notes, usually by the bass player. Both are using the same principle of adding a chromatic passing tone so that you can keep chord tones on the downbeats or in the emphasized place of the bar, keep those kind of emphasized, and then keep the non chord tones and the passing tones on the upbeats or in the less emphasized parts of the bar. So it's a way of just sort of inserting a step into the sequence of the line so that you can land where you want to land, and that's what Pink Floyd is doing on this line as well. Now, were the members of the band thinking of jazz harmony when they wrote this part? Probably not. But it's still, that's kind of where this comes from, and that kind of idea, you know, the bebop scale, it was just something that kind of came out organically from a lot of jazz musicians figuring out practical ways to get their lines to sound the way they wanted their lines to sound. It's a small, specific, and very cool example of the infinite ways that Black American music influenced everything, the way that all music sounds, everything that you hear probably has some kind of a root in Black American music from decades before it. Bebop scales are also pretty cool. If any of you out there learning how to improvise, working on soloing, look up bebop scales, start to learn. There's also major bebop scales. Those are also very useful. Uh, with a major bebop scale, the half note is in between the fifth and the sixth. So you use that over a major chord and you use mixolydian bebop over a dominant chord. Between those two, you can play over a whole lot of stuff. They're, they're very helpful. Patrick writes, on the episode on Prince's Kiss, you talk about how minimalist the song is, and it reminded me of a quote by Paul McCartney talking about how it's much harder to write a really good simple song like I'm Down. It also reminded me of hearing Lord's first album, which is also fairly sparse and stripped down, and was noticeably different from a lot of pop songs at that time. Do you think that it is harder to write a really good simple minimalist song solo or melody versus something more complicated? If so, why do you think that is? Well, my answer to this question is that writing any good music is difficult, writing minimalist good music is difficult, and writing very maximalist, complicated, and dense music that's also good is difficult. Um, they're difficult in different ways, and it's easy to mess up both of them, though, of course, in different ways. I mean, messing up just a really simple song, if you're just writing a melody and a chord progression, you just have to have very strong, good ingredients. You need a really good melody and a really nice chord progression, a good song form, good lyrics, because each individual element is going to matter so much because there's just not a lot to it. So, yeah, it's hard to do that because you need to create those things and have them be strong enough to carry the song because there isn't a lot else going on. But you need those things in a more dense context uh, complicated song as well. Patrick references Lord's album Pure Heroin. This is a 2013 album that she co-produced with Joel Little. And yeah, I, the minimalism of this album struck me the first time that I heard it. I think it sounds really, really cool. Um, Billie Eilish's recent stuff that she made with Phineas, her brother, also kind of minimalist in a similar way. And I respect the heck out of music like this that can be so compelling and so interesting sounding without a whole ton going on in the mix. Explosions on TV this is the Lord's Song buzz cut season, and I mean, it gets a lot out of how minimalist it is. It gets so small before it gets big. The pool, 
I think that that also illustrates how complicated this question is, because I think that that album is minimalist from a production standpoint. There's not a whole lot going on in any given track. They use space very effectively. They use reverb really beautifully. There's a really just nice sense of space and contrast, and you can hear each individual sound, you know, the electronic drums, the pads, the backup vocals that come in and out. Um, There's a lot of room for everything to move around, but I wouldn't call these songs minimalist songs in the way that Paul McCartney may have been talking about. You tell lies, thinking I can see. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. I'm down. So, this is I'm Down by Paul McCartney, performed by the Beatles. This is the song that Patrick was referencing in his question. This is simple in a different way. This song is just a blues. It's very straightforward harmonically. I mean, it's kind of like a tweaked blues with a different turnaround at the end, but it's really, really straightforward from a songwriting perspective. So writing a song like that has its own unique challenges as well. I mean, you can write a blues. You've pretty much got the form established already. So then what do you have to say? You know, what's what's going to be the hook of your blues to make it stand out from the six billion blues songs that already exist? And Prince's Kiss is a good example of a blues that does stand out from the six billion blues songs that already exist. I mean, that's a great example of taking really simple elements and then doing something totally new with it and making a song that still sounds distinct all these years later. To boil it down, though, I would say that anything that only has a few elements in it, be they harmonic melodic elements of a song or just acoustic mix elements of a production, that's going to be difficult because each of those elements needs to really stand on its own and be very strong because it's holding up a sort of larger percentage of the overall creation. However, it's just as difficult to make something very complicated. Obviously, the easiest trap you can fall into if you make something with a million parts and a million different sounds is that it it just gets too jumbled and busy, and that's a really common mistake that a lot of people make, especially in the age of digital music creation, because you can set up Logic or GarageBand and suddenly have a whole symphony orchestra at your fingertips, and if you're not very careful soon, you know, there's 17 synth parts and a million string parts, and everything is just sort of mashing into everything else, and it's hard to hear what's even going on. Um, I've certainly been there. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have been there. And that's kind of why when you go back to the days of just sitting down with a four track recorder and a guitar and your voice and just seeing what you can come up with, like that's a good way to write because it restricts you and because you then have to make each of those core elements, the melody, the chord progression, the song form, the lyrics, you have to make them all strong and you can't get sidetracked with all the bells and whistles that you can if you're working in a digital studio. So I'd say that yes, it is challenging, though it's challenging in a way that kind of incentivizes good writing. So I'd say if you're going to challenge yourself one way or the other, start by challenging yourself in the minimalist way to just come up with the good core elements. But yes, I mean, writing great music is hard no matter how you're doing it, how busy or simple it is. It's just, it's not easy to write great music. And so it's always going to have some sort of a distinct challenge. Kira writes, I have a question about mid-90s music, particularly grunge, though not exclusively. When I hear a mix with newer and older stuff, it feels like the older stuff has a much fuller sound. It's like there's more bass and guitar, but also kind of more everything in both channels. Was there some sort of compression or mixing trend that was popular at the time that gave this full, warm, kind of enveloping sound? Or am I just hashtag nostalgic for my teen years? Well, yes, there is a reason that some things from the early 90s and and before that, kind of from the 80s, sound better, especially hard rock and radio music, sound better than stuff from the mid and late 90s in particular, and it's to do with mastering and something called the loudness wars. The Loudness Wars refers to a change that took place in mastering when the whole of the music industry shifted to digital music, and specifically shifted to the compact disc, from analog formats like tape and vinyl. Mastering engineers are the last step in the chain. They take the stereo mix and they kind of sweeten it, they push the levels up, they kind of compress things a bit, they get everything sounding nice and even and ready for the radio. In the analog days, the mastering engineer had to make sure that every mix would sound good and would work on analog systems, like vinyl systems, which meant they were working in a pretty restricted way. They they couldn't go too wild with the levels because there was a lot of sort of inconsistency. You never you couldn't push things too uh too far. You wanted to be more more conservative. The advent of digital meant that you actually had a sort of mathematical number that you could look at and say, well, all CD players are going to read this digital information the exact same way, so we can crank the levels to exactly this stopping point, meaning there was a lot more headroom and they could squeeze a lot more loudness out of a recording. 
This is something that mastering engineers understand a lot better than I do, and I'm kind of just paraphrasing. I recommend going and listening to the episode of 20,000 Hertz about this. They did a two-parter on this subject a little while ago. I had the host of 20,000 Hertz on Strong Songs, Dallas Taylor, and we talked about it a little bit as well, but their series is very good, and he has a ton of great examples that really demonstrate how this works uh, more effectively than I could. So go check those out. I'll put links to them down in the show notes, and I know I'm kind of promoting a lot of 20,000 Hertz on this episode, but actually as it happens, I'm a guest on the most recent episode about the DSE Ray, which is something that longtime listeners of this show will remember from the episode that I did about making Christmas from the Nightmare Before Christmas. So if you want to hear me playing melodica and talking about minor tonality, go check that out. Mary writes, I am a choir director and wanted to give you the term for the technique Don McLean uses at the beginning of American Pie, which you talked about on an earlier Q&A episode. It is recitative. This is a technique used in operas, oratorios, and musicals. It may sound random and does offer some opportunity for improvisation, but they are usually planned with the accompanying instruments or the conductor. The recitative is also a device to set the scene for an aria or song, which McLean does so well. Listen to Handel's Messiah for recitatives that wonderfully lead to arias. So that is the official term for what Don McLean is doing on American Pie. Thanks, Mary, for writing in to share that. A long, long time ago I can still remember How that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance Katie writes, maybe you can settle a debate on your podcast. I loved hearing your other settlements on Q&A episodes. Yes, I am happy to settle debates on Q&A episodes. If you ever have a musical disagreement with somebody, feel free to send it in and uh, I will weigh in. So here's Katie's. My husband and I have a disagreement about the song SOB by Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. He thinks that the chorus modulates up a full half step, but I believe they are still in the same key and have just tuned up by a quarter step, either on purpose or by speeding up the track. It doesn't sound to me like they are a full half step higher going into that first chorus. Who do you think is right? We are both trained lifelong musicians and it's odd for us to disagree on how we hear something like this. All right, this is a pretty, uh, this is an interesting example. So let's listen to the song. This is Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats performing their song S.O.B. I'm on a ride and shake my body. So the question here is whether we're in the key of F or the key of F sharp, and there's an argument to be made for both because it's kind of in between. It's not perfectly in tune. And then also when they get to the chorus, they do go just a little bit higher. Son of a bitch! Great chorus, by the way. Great song. Talking about that earlier question about writing a simple song, this song is a really straightforward song form. Totally rules. So yeah, you can write, you know, a classic sounding song with a classic, very simple stripped down song form and it can be good, especially if you have a really poppin' band and this band sounds great. Okay, so on to Katie's question. Is this kind of starting in F and then jumping up a full half step in the chorus and then staying up in F sharp for the rest of the song? Or is it just an F sharp and it's just slightly kind of tuned a little bit differently, especially during that first verse? I think that that second thing is what's going on here. So Katie, I'm siding with you on this one. I think the song is just in F sharp. I'm basing that on a few things. What I think is going on here is that this song is written in F-sharp, but they started it just a little bit loose, because this strikes me as the kind of band that just records in the studio altogether, and it's, I think, very important that that opening verse is entirely a cappella. It's just singing and hand percussion, like hand claps and sort of thumps on your chest. When that happens, it's a lot easier to stretch the tuning just a little bit. You don't go out of tune, because you're in tune with one another, and that's the important thing, but you can get a little bit away from where the instruments are tuned, because there's no reference point. There's no piano, there's no guitar, there's no other instrument playing, so they're just singing in tune with one another. It sounds great, but then by the time the band comes in, they've kind of brought it up to where the guitars are tuned, which is closer to an A440, and then they're definitely and solidly in the key of F sharp. It's a noticeable shift. It could be that they actually spliced there, that they had recorded that a cappella intro, and then they recorded the chorus separately, and by the time they were recording the chorus separately, the vocals were totally set to the same tuning as the guitars, so he just, because he just comes in really solidly on that F sharp. I mean, that's a really solid F sharp right there. 
it's a noticeable shift up. I wonder if that's because there's a splice and they recorded the one thing just sort of tuning to one another and then later recorded the chorus and as a result the tuning's just a little bit off. I think it actually sounds really cool though because as you know Katie it just it sounds like there's this lift into the chorus that's also where the band comes in and it's really exciting having it it's not quite a key change at least in my opinion it's just sort of like a little bit higher it's all just tuned a little bit higher. The other reason that I think this song is an F sharp is that I went and checked out some live performances of it there's a cool one of them doing this on the BBC and when they perform this live they're pretty solidly in the key of F sharp they started in F sharp and that's them all at once you know starting out in the same key and that makes me think this song was written to be an F sharp and there's just kind of a bit of an idiosyncrasy with that beginning verse in the studio which I think makes the studio version very special and very cool but I do think that in the end Katie you're right on this one this song is in F sharp Matthew writes, I love listening to my friends' bands, but sometimes, even though the musicians are great on their own, the mix is perfectly good, they still sound like a garage band and not a professional band. The main difference I notice is a certain sluggishness in the sound. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it just the group not being completely on the beat every time, or is something else going on? Well, this is actually a good question that sort of relates back to that last question. Uh, There is something to this. Uh, There's a lot of different things that possibly could be, and I haven't heard your friends' bands, Matthew, that you're asking about. But yeah, I know the general thing that you're talking about. There can be a lack of cohesion in some band recordings, usually when they're not recorded by professional recording engineers, and usually when the parts are recorded separately. So for starters, yeah, a band just needs to be tight. They need to play tight with one another, and even really good bands with good players, a lot of times there are some things that are just a little bit loose, like the kick drum and the bass need to just be super dialed in, and it's kind of the difference between a great drummer and a good drummer is that a lot of drummers get very good playing on their own, but great drummers play with a lot of bass players and get very, very good at locking in with the bass player, and that's more than just playing the kick drum at the exact same time as the bass is playing bass notes, even though, you know, that's part of it, having your timing lineup it's just feeling the groove together and a lot of great bands they just do that instinctively because both the drummer and the bass player have been playing with so many different musicians over the years they've gotten really really good at it and it's one of those things it's it's kind of hard to articulate you can look at the waveforms when you're mixing the drums and the bass and see how they don't line up but it's more than just a mathematical thing it's like a feel thing and that is sort of the difference between a great band and an okay band When I talk about bands recording separately, if you record the drums separate from the bass in particular, you get a lot more of that kind of just slight looseness. They're just not gelled in that way that they would be if they were playing together. It's also like if you're in a great recording studio where you can have a nice, you know, the bass player is often a nice isolated space, the drummer's in a nice isolated space, but they can see one another, there's good sight lines, there's a really good headphone mix and they can hear everything. All of that stuff also makes a difference, but that stuff's hard to get because you've got to go to a studio where there's enough space and enough equipment and the engineer knows what they're doing. And just as someone who records at home and wouldn't be able to set that kind of thing up on my own, um, I know how hard it is to get that stuff and how expensive it is. So a lot of bands, when they record on their own, that's kind of some of the sacrifices that you make. And you can make up for that in a lot of different ways, but that's one of the first things to go if you're if you're recording on your own. So it could be that. It could be the mix. You know, a lot of mixing is just this sort of subtlety. Uh, engineers talk a lot about glue, the idea of using compressors and EQ to glue things together a really good mix just has it just has a certain quality to it that's very hard to get unless you really know what you're doing and you've been mixing albums for a long time I'm a mediocre engineer at best when it comes to mixing I'm not really that good at it and when I listen to a really well mixed album I mean it's fascinating how good that can sound so the mix the mixing engineer can play a big role there and I want to talk more about mixing actually know a couple of mix engineers that I want to have on the show to talk a little bit about that art form because it's fascinating but it could also be that. It could be that just the mix isn't quite what it would be if they'd hired a professional mixing engineer and if it was super perfectly well mixed. And related to that, the last thing that I think, just Matthew, when you say the term sluggishness, it makes me think of compression because compression is a thing that can, it can really enhance the sort of punchiness and bounce of a track, but it can also add a sort of sluggishness to it if you have, you know, if your your compressors are too fast, you're kind of like smushing things too much. It's sort of, you lose transients, you lose 
lose this sort of pop that a recording can have. And as someone who struggles with compression, it's a complicated thing and it takes a lifetime to get good at it. Um, I know how that can happen, how if you just use compression wrong in a few too many places, you start to kind of cut off too much of the pop of the recording and you start to get a sort of a sluggish feeling even though the musicians are playing well and they sound good and that's actually a way that a bad mix or specifically um, a, a sort of bad use of compression can really kind of kill the energy of a recording and it can happen in you know kind of a thousand paper cuts it can just sort of be inexpertly applied compression across all the tracks and the buses and then just you eventually you're just sort of losing something and it starts to feel kind of sluggish and so if I were hearing that feedback or if I listened to a mix and thought this just kind of sounds sluggish compression would probably be the first place that I would look Okay, we have a few questions I want to get through that are just related to practicing and to your musical practice. Uh, a few people wrote in about that, and I just want to answer those questions really quickly. First, Richard writes, would you recommend I learn songs first on guitar and then learn the lyrics or try to learn them both at the same time? I find it hard to do both at once, but I can't help trying to sing along. My wife suggests that I give up the singing, but I know she has ulterior motives. So I would say, yes, learn the song on guitar first. The lyrics, you probably already know. Learn how to sing it as well. Practice the two things separately. So learn the whole song on guitar, then learn the whole song singing, practice them separately, then combine them really methodically. Go like a measure at a time, a phrase at a time, go very slowly and sort of work out what your voice is going to have to be doing as your fingers move from chord to chord or figure to figure. It's something that you need to know the guitar part first before you start learning the singing because it's not easy. Like um, even if you're, I mean, if you're strumming really basic chords, I guess it's not that hard to sing, but even then that can kind of be difficult and you want to go very slowly slowly and get it so you can kind of, you know, uh, rub your belly and pat your head at the same time. That's kind of what you're doing. You have to do two things and focus your brain on two things at once. So learn them separately, then slowly combine them and be very methodical about it. Use a metronome if you if you can, because that'll help you sort of be regimented in your rhythmic approach. And uh, yeah, that's the approach that I would suggest. Jasmine writes, I'd love to know more about how you practice as a multi-instrumentalist. How do you balance your time across instruments? Also, do you or have you ever kept a practice journal? If so, what things have you found important and useful to record? So in order, I've talked about this in the past, but yeah, I'm a multi-instrumentalist. At this point, I play a bunch of different instruments, and mostly these days I work on guitar, bass, vocals, drums. Uh, those are kind of the main ones that I'm practicing in piano some. I don't practice saxophone as much anymore because that was my main instrument for a lot of years, and I could be practicing that and it would be fun, but I, I kind of have a lot more room to grow on those other instruments. I tend to focus on one at a time, usually for like a month, six weeks, maybe two months. I don't go too quickly between them all, at least when it comes to bass, drums, and guitar, which are the main three instruments that I practice. I find that I need a kind of consistent practice on one of those instruments and it just doesn't work for me to go from one to the next to the next. I don't have time. I mean, maybe if I was practicing all day, I could break up my time, but I, I don't. So I, I kind of have one major practice session each day. Um, so I focus on one at a time. The exception to that is vocals. I do practice singing every day because that's more of a muscle thing. I'm trying to learn new habits and build up new things in my voice. So I practice like an hour of singing each day. So that's a little bit different and I do practice an hour of singing each day. As far as a practice journal goes, I don't keep one right now, but I should. They're great anytime that I've kept one. It's been really good. And this is just where you kind of document what you worked on that day. What it helps me do is just make consistent progress. I keep track of tempos in particular when I'm working on scales or patterns, figures, etudes. If I am slowly increasing the speed each day, I can then look at my progress. It just makes it a lot easier for me not to wind up accidentally treading water for a few days, doing the same thing at the same speed all the time, never really in improving or having any growth. It's just just when you have a log of it, it's a lot easier to look back and track your growth. And then it's also fun, you know, two years down the road to look back at your practice journals from a long time in the past. So yeah, I love practice journals. Totally recommend them. Last practicing question comes from Levi, who writes, I've been playing guitar for over 10 years and I'm a decent player, but I want to take my playing to the next level. What kind of practice regimen would you suggest to reach that goal? Should I focus on drilling fundamentals, learning lots of intermediate level pieces, or tackling something really challenging and slowly building it up so that I can play it well? Okay, I guess that third thing, um, you know, taking something really hard, something that's beyond you, and then slowly breaking it apart, taking it really slow, building it up so that you can learn it, that is a good way to grow if you've been playing for a while and you've got a lot of stuff together. However, I'm actually going to give slightly different but possibly predictable advice, and that is get a private teacher. If you've been learning for 10 years and it sounds like you're looking just for like a kind of self-taught thing with, um, you know, some a new practice regimen, a new thing for you to tackle on your own, if you really want to take your playing to the next level... 
get a private teacher. Not only will they be able to tell you specifically what you should be doing and assign you pieces and work with you on them, it's just, it's the best way both to have someone working with you on your technique specifically, but also just paying someone, paying a private teacher. It'll make you take your own practice more seriously in a way that's kind of hard to articulate, but has a real effect. And I think that that is one of the most helpful things about getting a private teacher. It gets you outside of your own experience and outside of your head. It brings somebody else in in a way that I think is really, really helpful. So that's my advice. Advice. Maybe Levi, you already have a private teacher and this advice is not necessary for you. But anybody listening to this, if you've been playing an instrument for a while, if you're self-taught, you want to get better, get a private teacher. YouTube tutorials are great. Online tips and advice are great. There's no substitute for having another human being look at your playing and tell you what you can do to get better. That's the way that you can take your playing to the next level. And that'll do it for the final Q&A episode of Strong Songs Year 2. Thanks to everybody who sent in a question. And if you would like to send in a question for consideration for Year 3, send emails to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. All my social links are down in the show notes. You can also sign up for my newsletter. I'm going to be sending one of those out pretty soon. So there's a link for that down in the show notes as well. Thank you so much to everyone who supports Strong Songs on Patreon. You're making all of this possible. I, I can't say enough how much I appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about how to support me making this show, which is totally listener-supported, go to patreon.com strongsongs. You can also support me by spreading the word, so if you know someone who might like this show, tell them about it. This episode's outro solos is the one and only Dan Nervo on the guitar, so stick around for Dan, and I will be back in two weeks with yet another Strong Song. Strong Song.